We are talking tonight about um, we're talking tonight about the uh, translation issue. I hope to finish this up tonight, not because I'm growing bored of it, because we could be here a long time talking about a lot of different pieces to it. And if you have some more questions or some thoughts, I would be glad to sit down with you and, and talk about it. Like I said, I've given it a lot of thought. Before I forget, AG, would you get a count for us tonight? Sort of include the uh, little ones that we have. There are five issues that we've been working through for our study, inspiration, preservation, canonization, translation, and illumination. And as I mentioned, the reason for these uh, five words is because it helps us understand why we have, as a church, Elmira Baptist Church has chosen to use the King James Version of the Bible. I'm not saying that if you believe in these five things, you have to end up here. I was talking with a fellow yesterday, and boy, he was quoting scripture, but I could tell he wasn't quoting from this version, but he loves the Lord. He's memorized and meditated on God's word, and I am thrilled that he's doing that. Uh, I do think there's some very good reasons to pick this translation, and that's where we are going to, what we're going to look up, look at again tonight. There were four issues that we were trying to wrap up with here. The first issue was uh, what text should we use? We covered that. Not going to cover that tonight. We left off on this one. What is the best method of translation to use? Uh, Lord willing, we'll get to for whom are we translating? And then also how do we assess the maturity of a translation? We might not get to that tonight. And if we don't, it'll be uh, two weeks before I get to that. Uh, I, I have a few uh, facsimiles of Bible versions before the King James over here on this uh, organ. There's a Geneva Bible over there. There's a Tyndale Bible, a facsimile, a Tyndale Bible. There's a um, Matthew Bible, which is really Tyndale and Coverdale's work all bound into one. And there's also um, there's one more. Coverdale's Bible, I guess, is over there too. So if you're curious what it would have looked like 500 years ago, 400 years ago, you can take a look at those after the, after the service. One of the reasons that the King James Bible is so well translated is because there were so many translations before it, they got to work out some, some bugs, so to speak. They got to, to, to figure out some things that worked for them. We'll talk more about that when we get to that section. But let's focus tonight, or begin to focus tonight, on the method of translation, what method of translation is best. And there are two main methods. Do you have a number for me? 31. All right, thank you. There are two main methods, and um, the first is called thought for thought, sometimes called dynamic equivalence or functional equivalence, trying to understand what the writers were thinking when they wrote that and then translate it into such a way that it would mirror what we think in English. The other is word for word. We call this a complete equivalence, sometimes formal equivalence. The goal in this type of translation is to translate the words from the original Hebrew and Greek into the target language for us that would be English could be other uh, other uh, uh, languages for other people but word for word now when we look at inspiration preservation canonization translation illumination why which of these two methods would we be most likely to pick and why Yes, Patty. Word for word, because yes, God inspired the word. Exactly. We want a translation that strives for a word for word translation 
because God inspired the words of Scripture, not the thoughts. I mean, don't don't misunderstand. We can make too big of a deal out of this. Obviously, the men who were writing had to think, but it's the words that were inspired. I can't go back in history and know what Isaiah was thinking when he wrote. But by God's grace and his preservation of Scripture, we can go back and we can see which Hebrew words he used to write with and then translate those words into English. So I'm going to encourage you as we consider the maturity of a translation, the usefulness of a translation, we're always looking as Christians, whether it's in English or Mongolian, Chinese, we're always looking for a word-for-word -word translation. So oftentimes, if you are curious about a translation, just open it up to the introduction. Sometimes there's a preface in it that the translators themselves have written. And if it says something like, we have tried to translate the thoughts, you can just set that one aside. I'm not gonna be as useful to you as one that says, we're trying to translate the words, okay? So keep that in mind as we go through a couple of these dynamic equivalent problems and uh, trying to tra why trying to translate the thoughts is not the best way to do it. I'm going to skip number one and go on to number two. Yes. Okay, I understand what you're saying, Pastor, but uh, yes. as you know, when you translate from one language to another, right. you can translate word for word. That's right. So, I mean, I guess you're going to talk about that, like how do you get around that? Or, or I mean, I, yes, yes, I, I, yes. We use word for word because it is a simpler way to express it. What we are trying to do when we have a word for word translation is we're trying to express into the target language. Target language in this case would be English. We're trying to express, express into the target language. Every grammatical piece of the foundational language, Hebrew, Greek. We're not just gonna say, oh, you know what? That word doesn't matter, toss it, right? right? We're not gonna say, well, I, I see that word but really what they meant was, uh, this is an example here um, we talked about last time, also to the Greek in Romans 1.16. And this is, I forget which translation, but they translated Gentile. Now, the word is Greek in the Greek. So why did they translate it as Gentile? Well, they assume that you are too stupid to know what a Greek person is, so maybe you know what a Gentile I don't know. I didn't talk to the translators. <laughs> But they made it. They made a change there. Um, now this isn't because it's not word for word, but it's because they're trying to get behind the thoughts that Paul had when he wrote this, instead of just translating the words. Now you're right. Sometimes, even in our English Bible, there'll be one Greek word that is translated with three or four English words. Or sometimes, this is more rare, but there'll be several Greek words that end up being translated by one English word. So we're not saying for every Greek word you need an English word. We're just saying we want to translate every word and not try to translate thoughts. Okay, let me, let me move on um, to this. Uh, someone asked me if I would just go through this. And so this is from John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. This is the Greek. And again, if you know Greek and you can read this, I'm so happy for you. This is not important that you know how to read these words, but I've just given you a gloss. So this, this Greek word here means sanctify. This Greek word means them. This Greek word means in. Anyone want to tell us what this Greek word is? It's an article, so the truth. But we don't translate the truth here because in, in English. 
because although this is good Greek, it has a, another pronoun that stands for thy. So we translate this, sanctify them through thy truth. See that? So here's a good example of what Gibbon was asking. It would be confusing to translate this, sanctify them through the thy truth, or through thy the truth. Because in English, we don't speak that way. Even though that's fine Greek, we don't speak that way. So there are times when we leave, leave words, or not, I, if I say leave words out, you're going to misunderstand. There are times we can translate two words, the truth, with one English word. And there'll be times when there's multiple English words. Again, this is another article, and then this is the word, word, okay? Another article, and then thy again, and truth. You can see these two words are the same. And then the word is. So thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Here's another translation. Again, this is an attempt at a word-for-word -word translation. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now, I'm not too worried about these two translations. This is the one I'm worried about, and this one says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Now, I have two problems with this translation. The first problem I have, the first one I'm gonna mention to you, is this word teach. There's a good Greek word for teach, and it does not appear in here. So where do they come up with this teach word? They're trying to translate John's thoughts, or in this case, Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer to God the Father. Jesus' thoughts into good English. But I don't know why they put teach them, because there's no teach in this verse. Now the second thing, and this is where I, I um, you can get bogged down. You may. Make them holy. Some of you say, you know, well, make them holy is a good synonym for sanctify. Because sanctify means to make holy. And you're, you're right that that is, is true. But in simplifying this, make them holy, what ends up happening is we end up losing semantic range. So before you get too worried about semantic range, let me give you another example here. Matthew 12, 37. Go ahead and look this up in your Bible, Matthew 12, 37. Matthew 12, 37. And we're going to use the word justify rather than sanctify because this is an easier example to understand about losing semantic range, okay? Matthew 12, 37 says, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Well, in the New Living Translation, they don't use the word justify because it's too hard for people to understand. So what they do is they use this word, acquit. The word you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Um, then jump over to, I'm, I'm just over to Romans 3.20. Again, this is in the New Living Translation. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. In the King James, Matthew 12, 37 has the word justify in it, which is a good translation of the Greek word, which means to justify, to make righteous, to declare, not to make, excuse me, to declare righteous, to declare righteous. Um, does the word justify also appear in Romans 3, 20? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, the Greek word for, justi uh, for justify also occurs in Romans 3.20. But again, because they're trying to simplify it, they've changed it there to no one can ever be made right with God. If you were to look at these two verses in the New Living Translation, you would have no idea what the Greek words were behind these two translations. Because in one case they translated it as acquit, and in another case they translated that word into made right. This is the King James, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words I shall be condemned. And this is, again, the King James, therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So we can see that there's a Greek word behind this justified here and this justified here. By the way, this justified is not the same as just justified, is it? It's not. Can anybody get to heaven by their works? No. Jesus is talking about a different issue here than, he's than, than God is, is talking about here. But it gives us the semantic range for the word justified. In this case, a, a, a near synonym for justified could be vindicated. Now, that doesn't work here, but that works here, because justified has a broader semantic range than just to declare to be righteous. Now, think in your mind, think in your mind, okay, set, set all this aside for a second, we're going to use a really basic illustration. Think in your mind of a tree. Does everyone have a tree in your mind? In your mind's eye, you're imagining a tree. How many of you have a fir tree, pine tree, or redwood tree? How many of you had some deciduous tree with all the leaves? How many of you had a little bush? I mean, tree has a huge semantic range, all the way from 300-foot redwoods down to little scrubby, overgrown junipers, right? They could all be called trees. As soon as we say something like fir tree or redwood tree or, or even juniper, we have reduced the semantic range. And what I'm trying to help you understand is when you have a thought-for-thought -thought translation, we call it dynamic equivalence, you end up reducing the semantic range of the words that you're translating, and it prevents the Holy Spirit from helping his people understand what he is saying. Because instead of keeping the door open, so to speak, and, and, and allowing for a wider range, you're closing the door to just a little crack that you've got to fit through. Because we believe in the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we are not particularly concerned with how difficult a translation is to read. Yes, I just said that. Let me say that again. We are not particularly concerned with how difficult a translation is to read. If it is grammatically correct, lexically clear, we're not worried about it because the Holy Spirit's going to help you and help me understand what's written. And you can dumb down the scriptures so that anybody could read it. I mean, after all, how many people out on the street know what justify means? So let's excise that word out of the Bible and use an easier to understand term like acquit or make right. But what you've done is you've lost some of the meaning that God put there when he caused those words to be written. I'm going to move on from that. Um, 
and this is a quote from someone else, it's a good one. So functional, excuse me, formal equivalence, that is to say, a focus on translation relies on the intelligence of the reader, the diligence of the scholar, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit to get to the meaning of the text. Not in that order. No, no, thank you, Scotty. I'm quoting someone else, but Scotty's right. We should put the illumination of the Holy Spirit first. So if somebody comes to you and says, well, the most important thing for a translation is that it's easy to read. That is not true. The most important thing for a translation, a Bible translation, is that it is accurate, even if it's difficult to read. Now, if you want to make Homer easy to read or Plato easy to read, great. I'm all for that because those are not God's words. Those are men's words. You can have differences of opinion about whether it's important to translate to make it easier to read or to make it more accurate. But when it comes to God's word, accuracy is important. Which brings us to our next um, question. For whom are we translating? Are we translating for the man on the street, or are we translating for the man in the pews? Everybody. No, that's not true. We are not translating for everybody. Let's open our Bibles. Well, you already know this verse, but if you need a verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What word in that verse jumps out at you as not understandable to the average American? Begot. I can't remember the last time I was talking to someone and I used the word begat or begot or begot. So you'll find translations that just uh, ignore that. They say, um, we don't need that word. Here's a, the one I just quoted. Here's a different translation. By the way, this is a translation, this is the ESV, that strives to be word for word, but they said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let me ask you a question. Is Franklin a son of God? Spiritually speaking. Yes, spiritually speaking, he is. AJ is. David is. The only reason Patty's not is because she's a daughter of God, right? And Sarah's a daughter of God. But if we say that God gave his only son, that's confusing because God doesn't have, God has more than one son. God has more than one son. Now, he only has one begotten son. Go ahead, Neodron. What's that? Yeah, yeah, we're adopted sons, adopted daughters, right? That's the distinction between begotten, which, which in a human context would mean born of, and causes some people to think that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is not a created being. I understand that you understand that. That's the key in begotten, just a second, the key in begotten is that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. Where you and I, we are also sons of God, but we are not of the same essence as the Go ahead, Guillermo. I was just going to tell you that in the Spanish version, yes. is it says the only son. Yeah, it doesn't say begotten. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I really and I know. By the way, the Greek word behind begotten is monogenes, and I know that there's a dispute about the meaning of monogenes among Greek scholars. But just setting that aside, if you don't translate monogenes and you just say his only son, you you 
it's just not accurate because there's God has I'm a son of God and so is Matt and so is is David and so is Franklin. Do you remember in Mongolia, Pastor? How do you how was it translated? Uh, now you put me on the spot. Sorry. I don't remember. Um, I think we use the word kurik, which is to, to give birth to. I'd have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. But here's my point. We leave this in because we're translating for the Christian who has the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help him understand the text. And if we show this to a person who's just walking down the street, they may not understand this. I, I do. I believe that that to be true. I have a I have a, an acquaintance who who really feels strongly on the other side than this. You know, we're asking kids that we have into Bible clubs or vacation Bible school to memorize scripture. Not no idea what they're memorizing unless we make it simple for them. But the goal of Bible translation is not to make it simple. The goal of Bible translation is to make it accurate. So again, do we translate for the person on the street or for the person in the pew? And before we answer that question, how does our belief in illumination guide us in our answer to this question? That's not rhetorical. How does our belief in illumination guide us in our answer to that question? Franklin. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> Amen. How many of you, before I get to Guillermo's question or comment, how many of you in the last week have been reading your Bible and have said to God, I don't understand this passage, Lord, would you show me what it means? I do that. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Go ahead, Guillermo. Okay. But this is the this is the Okay, so if you if you knew both languages, Spanish and English, yes. and you realize that in Spanish, it doesn't say begotten. Yes. What are you going to do? Are you going to tell the Spanish person your version is wrong? Or, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Gotta... I do. You're trying to put me on the spot. And I don't mind that you're doing that because my God is bigger than any one translation. Thank you. So if you're reading the Reign of Valera and it doesn't have begotten, okay. So, if you read if you read this version in English and it doesn't have begotten, a friend of mine argued, a different friend of mine argued, well, but it's got a capital S. You and I are sons with a lowercase s. There's only one capital S son. Okay. I mean, sure. You can make that argument too. I don't mind. This capital is Spanish, by the way. But I still, I still prefer that it has this uh, begotten because it helps us understand that there's a difference in quality between Jesus, the Son of God, and... Uh, that whosoever believeth in him should become the son of God. There's a difference. Yes, Warren? I'm just thinking this is probably one of those times when a semantic range limitation actually benefits the text. Go ahead. Begotten is not just a broad range of sons. Right. It is a specific type of typology of sons. Right. There's a lot more we could talk about. Um, I'm going to move on to the last point here. And the last point for us tonight is, how do we assess the maturity of a translation, whether it's in English or Spanish or Mongolian or Chinese? I have a little rubric here that I hope is a help to you. What you want is you want a faithful translation 
that's working to represent every word in the original, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, every word in the original, in the target language. And if they use an accurate text, you're going to end up with an excellent translation that you can trust. If they're trying to do a word-for-word -word translation, but they use a poor text, you're going to have a primarily good translation, but you will have odd textual issues. Uh, there are some texts, some English Bibles in John 1.18 that talk about the only begotten God. That, that is a really odd translation. But they're, they're doing a good job of translating a poor text. Instead of the only begotten Son, which is what your Bible reads in John 1.18, it says the only begotten God. So you're going to run across things like that where you say, boy, that, that's a head scratcher. And the illumination of the Holy Spirit isn't going to help you. Why not? Because it's 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 good translation of the wrong text. It isn't the word that God gave us when he caused the holy men of old to be moved by the Holy Spirit. If you have a sloppy translation that attempts to convey the thoughts, you may have some areas of good translation. If they have a good text, you may have areas of good translation, and then there's going to be other sections that are misleading. But if you take a sloppy translation of a poor text, I would just avoid those altogether. Because you won't know which problems are caused by poor translation and which problems are caused by a poor text. Yep. We had that situation in Mongolia where someone had taken a poor text and they really, they really were trying to make a commentary out of it. And you remember the story where it, uh, the uh, people are given talents. The king comes back after a while and he says, okay, what did you do with your talents? And the guy who's been given... Ten talents, because I took your ten talents, <clears throat> and I made ten more talents. And the other guy said, I took your five talents, and I made five more talents. But what did the guy with one talent do? He buried it. This is in Matthew 25. Turn with me in Matthew 25, and I'll show you what happened here. So he says, Matthew 25, verse 24, the man with one talent, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not straw. Reaping where you have not sown. Now what is this servant who's lazy, the text tells us he's lazy, what is this servant who's lazy accusing the master of by making that statement? Stealing or, or, you know, making his money off the hard work of others, right? The guy that made ten talents, why doesn't he get to keep all ten? The guy who made five, why doesn't he get to keep five? Listen, I know you're just a hard man and you're just constantly, you know, making money off the hard work of other people, so I just put mine in the dirt. A poor translation of Mongolian said, I know that you're a hard man trying to get milk from a bull. Now, who is, what kind of person tries to get milk from a bull? Yeah, stupid. It's stupid, foolish person. You've just changed the tenor of what uh, the servant is saying to the master there. You haven't helped the Mongolians understand the story. You've actually prohibited it or, or, or inhibited them from understanding it fully. And that's why we would just, that trend, we would use, we, there was, there were several translations that we used in Mongolia, but we never used these translations. 
because it, it just was too confusing. And then people would say, well, is that a textual issue or is that a translation issue? Who knows? Unless you know Greek, which, I, I, yeah, we, we didn't want to point in that direction. So, all right, 737, 739. Woo. I mentioned earlier that I have a couple of um, books over here on this, on this uh, organ, if you want to look at them, they're facsimiles of previous translations. Just to give you some idea, the first translation of the Bible into English was John by, done by John Wycliffe and his uh, uh, fellow laborers in 1395. Uh, this was never printed. You know why this one was never printed? There were no printing presses in 1395. So all of these would have been written out by hand, manuscripts. I believe we still have those manuscripts. Also, this one, Wycliffe's version, would have been, was translated from the Latin Vulgate, because that's what he had available to him. Um, the next one is the Tyndale Bible, sometimes also called the Coverdale Bible. That's because Tyndale did most of the translation, but he was murdered before his complete translation came out, and Miles Coverdale picked up where he left off and uh, continued to work with his translation. I had the... Uh, I have a couple of words here. There's some of our translations into in our in our King James Bible come directly from Tyndale and from Coverdale. Here are some of the words that Tyndale created. They were, they were never seen in English before 1535. Tyndale created them so that he could express the Greek words or the Hebrew words in English. Peacemaker What's sort of the peacemakers, for they shall be called, isn't it the sons of God? I think that's how that one is. That word peacemaker is not found in any English writing before 1535. Uh, the word Passover, the word scapegoat, the word atonement, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Tyndale's translation. Uh, my brother's keeper, when Cain says to God, God says, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? That's a, a translation that you can find in Tyndale's. Um, in Coverdale, his Bible, you can find this, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, the word loving kindness also comes up in uh, the Coverdale Bible. Okay, then there was a great Bible, 1539. That's because the king of England didn't like these Bibles, so he decided this would have been Henry VIII. He said, we, we've got to get a better translation. So he caused the Great Bible to be translated. After that came the Geneva Bible. Uh, it was worked on, translated in the city of Geneva by Protestants who had fled England because they were being persecuted. They were non-Anglicans. And they translated the Geneva Bible. And then the Bishop's Bible was a response to the Geneva Bible. Again, uh, the king and, and his advisors didn't like the way the Geneva Bible had been translated, so they translated the Bishop's Bible and then the King James Bible in 1611. So you can see from 1535 to 1611, almost 80 years of intense translation uh, to get to the King James Bible. So this was this Bible, the King James Bible, didn't just come out of nowhere. It was often based on the Tyndale and the Coverdale Bible in many places, and then refined by looking at these other translations and better understanding how you could change the... Hebrew into English, or how you could change the Greek into the English language. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Let's get our